Welcome to Hot Take, where we talk about talking about climate. It's very meta. You're going to love it. I'm Mariana Ease Hedler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. In this podcast, we're going to take an intersectional crack at media criticism for the climate era, because it is the story of our time. Right. But we felt first there's a lot of base setting to do, because we don't really give ourselves enough time to think about it. But climate storytelling has changed dramatically in the past few years. It really has, especially in the Trump era. So our next couple of episodes are going to take a look back at 2016 to 2019 in review. I've been going back and reading some of those articles, and it's fascinating how much has changed in just a couple of years. So I can't wait to talk about it. Well, I can wait because I have a lot of reading to catch up on, but I'm excited too. Um, on this episode, though, we wanted to take a minute to talk through our own work. So Amy and I are friends now, but we met a few months ago as fans of each other, actually. That's right. So we thought we'd just do an episode where we fangirl out on each other and, you know, get that out of the way. Yeah, and we kind of thought it would be a good way for y'all to get to know us, too. I have never been a big white wine person, and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions, and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at 100 different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. 
That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Amy, how about we start with you since you've been doing this uh, quite a while. Um, I saw you recently say on Twitter that, um, you know, you've been hearing a lot of people say like, wow, Amy, you're suddenly everywhere in, in the climate space and you just got started writing recently and how much that bugs you because you've really been doing this for like a, more than a decade. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's funny. I think, um, you know, if you're a freelancer, you sort of end up writing about everything. But the thing that I've written about mm. the longest and most consistently is actually climate. And I've been writing mm-hmm. about it for maybe 16, 17 years now. Um, wow. Yeah. with But then I had sort of like a little break in the middle, which is that was sort of what I got into in that thread was that like, you know, I didn't actually come from nowhere. I, you know, started a long time ago, but then um, had various sort of career diversions foisted upon me by mm-hmm. the caregiving roles that are often assigned to women in our society. <laughs> And so I ended up taking like, you know, three or four years out, which is like an eternity in media years. It's like um, if you come back Mm -hmm. after four years, it's like you basically are just starting over. So there's this weird Mm -hmm. thing that happens there. And that's another thing that you write about as well. That's another theme of your writing. That's true. Yeah, I do write about American ideas about motherhood and how those ideas impact women, whether they have kids or not. So how those ideas kind of shape everything from societal Mm -hmm. expectations of women to workplace policies, health insurance policies. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of ways that like our weird ideas about um, family and motherhood in particular sort of infiltrate everyone's Mm -hmm. life, whether they choose to have kids or not. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. that reminds me of a piece that you wrote. I believe it was in the Guardian. Um, of course, U.S. birth rates are falling from May of 2018. Mm-hmm. I have a passage, and I'd love it if you could read it. Yeah, totally. My big claim to fame here is that Bernie Sanders shared this story across all of his social oh. media. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. Um, okay, so. Uh, The story was called, Of Course U.S. Birth Rates Are Falling. This is a harsh place to have a family. (laughs) And and here's this passage. You make that very clear. (laughs) Yeah. It's so – it's ridiculous. Yeah. In the midst of the harsh economic reality facing parents and would-be parents in America is a looming physical threat, climate change. As the president and his EPA head parrot talking points from the fossil fuel industry, pointing to volcanoes and natural temperature cycles as the culprits for warming temperatures, the global scientific community tells us that we have essentially run out of time to do anything about it, that any children we have will be at a higher risk of dying in a superstorm or a massive fire. That because a small handful of men decided that their own profits and comfort were more important than the rest of the world's safety, any new humans that join the world will face greater challenges than the generations that came before. A few months ago, Paul Ryan asked Americans to have more children and said he had, quote, done his part by fathering three. I would argue that his part is creating an America that's truly family friendly and he hasn't done it at all. 
Well, I very was true. So... Suck it, Paul Ryan. Yeah. No. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also just so well written. Like, I just, I mean, for the bigger piece, right, it's about all of these reasons U.S. birth rates are falling, like right. the housing crisis, unemployment or underemployment, the gig right. economy. Um, but you <laughs> ended it with the problem of all problems being climate change. And mm-hmm. yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this piece came to be. It kind of came out of the research that I did for my book, which came out last year, which was about all of this motherhood stuff. And I, you know, I I really what happened was I was seeing all of these pundits on social media kind of wringing their hands about the falling birth rate. And then I had also um, kind of gone back and forth on Twitter with this guy who claimed to be just like an objective, you know, sociology researcher just looking at the data. Somehow, yeah, he had like somehow gotten a piece (laughs) in the New York Times, not in their op-ed section, but in their like regular newspaper section where he claimed that the falling he basically claimed that the falling birth rate was due to like women being selfish and like modern women pursuing like careers instead of family and like shirking their reproductive duties like it was insane and I I was like how did this get printed in the newspaper Um, and so I kind of went back and forth with him for a while to see what what exactly was the data that he had gathered and whether he had looked at like Mm -hmm. um, you know wealth and equality or stagnant wages Mm -hmm. or the impacts of climate change on on all of these things. And of course, the answer was no. So that was kind of like the genesis of this piece. I was just like, I'm mad, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like most of my pieces. Um... Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think some of the best pieces come out of angry writing, to be quite honest. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Like, if I'm honest, the vast majority of my pieces that, like, are the most lovey-dovey, I think I talked about this a little bit on Drilled, like, the ones that are the most, like, woo-woo and hippie start really angry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, I thought that was so interesting that you said that, like, um, you will sort of start out with the angry version and then be like, okay, is this oh going to be God, productive? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Maybe I should soften this approach a little bit. Yeah. 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 Okay. Actually, that makes me want to have you read from one of your pieces that came out in the last couple years. And that this is. (laughs) Let's see if you pick one of the ones that actually started angry. (laughs) Well, I think you talk about anger in this um, and how and how sort of like productive it can be. So Mm. this one is called The Big Lie We're Told About Climate Change is that it's our own fault. And it appeared in Vox. And I have a little Mm -hmm. excerpt from here for you to read. You're talking a little bit about when you first started to read a lot of studies about climate change and get really involved in the movement and kind of experienced your first brush with climate grief. Right. Um, Sure. And actually, this is one of the ones that started very angry. And we could talk about that. Um. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think you talked about this on Drilled, where you said that it started out... um, 
you started out being like mad that people kind of read the recent mm-hmm. IPCC report and that they just realized that this was a serious problem, and then you yeah. you realize that like getting mad at people for being slow to to like realize was probably or telling them to like grow up was probably right. not good. Yeah, that was originally <laughs> the title in my head. So. I came to the organization as an editor, not as an environmentalist. I cared about the earth, of course. I knew climate change was real. I knew it was dire. I had an inkling that it was not far away, but I didn't know just how bad it was. I didn't know how many innocent, and I mean innocent, people were already suffering hideously. I didn't know how many people had been marked as allowable casualties simply because they were born in the wrong places under the wrong circumstances, right at that very moment. I knew I would see bad things in my lifetime, but I didn't know I would see them before 50, nor did I realize how many of them I'd actually already seen. I was in both Sandy and Katrina, after all. I didn't know it then, but I went into mourning. I skipped denial and went right to shock. I floated around on a dark, dark cloud. I frequently and randomly burst into tears, and I'd refuse to admit to myself that I knew exactly why I was crying. Where other people saw bustling crowds of people, I saw death and destruction. Even as I walked on dry land, I saw floods. I imagined wild animals, especially snakes, getting out of the zoos in the aftermath of natural disasters. I worried about how we would treat each other in the face of such calamity. I doubted it would be kind. I still doubt that, actually. I kept editing, but I tried to dissociate, as ridiculous as it sounds. It didn't work either. The craft of editing demands empathy. You have to be present. Then I went into depression. My social life turned into fits and spurts of intense engagement, followed by equally intense withdrawal. I was deeply afraid of telling even the people closest to me what I knew and why I was so scared. I couldn't sleep. The crying fits continued. They didn't become more predictable. Uh, I have to say, when I was reading this, it just felt so familiar and so like, yes, huh. that's totally how I felt. And like, and I still, yeah. I feel like I still cycle through that sometimes because it's yeah. Just, oh my god, me too. You go on in this essay to talk about how when Stevenson's book, "What We're Fighting For Now Is Each Other." helped to pull you Mm -hmm. out of that depression. Um, Can you talk about that book a bit and and how it got you from, like, you know, kind of despair and shock to righteous anger? Mm -hmm. So um, there's a quote from James Baldwin that I love um, where he says, you think you're alone until you read, and then you find out just how big the world is. Mm. Um, And I think reading that book, which... um, I highly recommend um, is it it sort of um, showed me that I wasn't crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, So like the opening, the introduction to it is really beautifully written. I'm going to start reading now. Okay, go. The question now is not whether we're going to stop global warming or solve the climate crisis. It is whether humanity will act quickly and decisively enough to salvage civilization itself in any form worth salvaging whether any kind of stable, humane, and just future, any kind of just society is still possible. We know that if the governments of the world actually wanted to address the situation in a serious way, they could. Finally acting as though we accept what the science is telling us and as though we actually care for our fellow human beings. But isn't that a bit extreme? 
really extreme? Business as usual is extreme. Just ask climate scientists. The building is burning. The innocents, the poor, the oppressed, the children, your own children are inside. And the American petrostate, which under the all of the above energy policies, has overtaken Saudi Arabia as the largest producer of oil and gas on the planet. It is spraying fuel, not water, on the flames. That's more than extreme. It's homicidal. It's psychopathic. It's fucking insane. That's great. Yeah. It is psychopathic. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. And so... Yeah. So during my experience, like first coming to terms with this, um, you kind of feel like you're crazy because everybody around you is just acting like this is normal, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I came to the green movement in, in earnest in 2014 and, you know, 2015 was the Paris agreement. My first year was like, sort of like that year of shock, mm. Um, yeah. And 2015 was my year of like, oh, coming back to life around it all. Um, and that is right during Paris while everybody was, um, you know, over there. That's when I was reading this book. Interesting. And I remember like watching all the preparations for the Paris Accord being like, wait a minute, but we're already too late. Like that was when I found out that we had already warmed. Right. That wasn't clear to me before. Well, yeah, because um, I, I, I mean, I feel like honestly, before that most recent IPCC report and and like and David Wallace Wells story in the in New York magazine, yeah. um, scientists yeah. just were they had a it was kind of a weird, like closed ranks thing where it was like, we know this, but let's not tell anybody else. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. It was such a weird experience. And when I would like. Finally, so after I read that book, that was when I started to be like, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm not, right. I'm not the crazy one. I should talk to someone about this. Right. Um, and I reached out to a couple of other people that, you know, were doing similar work. And it was like, no, I'm scared to death, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of gave me um, <laughs> a sense of security, at least, or like a, some sort of reassurance. Yeah, you know, it didn't fix the problem, but it was like at least now I have someone I can talk to, and I know that I'm not alone. Yeah, um, and that really helped me. Um, and that was what I was trying to do with this piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, like I was saying um, before, like we were saying a minute ago, um, that I I did write this in the wake of the IPCC report of 2018, the one that like had way more alarmist language than I believe any other IPCC report ever, Um, (laughs) which is probably evidenced by the fact it's the first one I had ever heard of. Yeah. Um, And I think most people. Yes. Um, And it's, I just sort of felt like everybody was collectively in mourning. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, you know, my first reaction was really frustrated. Um, And I want it to be like, grow the fuck up. We've been trying to tell you this forever, like, blah, 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 blah. And then I thought about like my own coming to terms with it. And I remembered the book that helped me come out of it. And this book did not approach me in that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This book did Mm -hmm. not approach, like Wynn's approach wasn't grow the fuck up, you big baby. Um, It was more like, no, you're right. (laughs) The way you feel is right. And you probably haven't acted on it because everybody else is acting like, you know, Let's just go along to get along. Right. And so, 
I decided that the best way to actually get someone to grow up, which is my goal, right? I do think we have to grow up as a society um, to deal yeah. with this problem. Yeah. Um, the best way to do that is to give them a roadmap. And the best roadmap I can give anyone is my own experience. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point, too, because when you know, has been writing about and knowing about climate for like, I mean, 20 plus years. So he definitely could have yeah. been like, yeah, guys, we tried to tell you, but he didn't yeah. take that tag yeah. at all. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. I want to talk to you. I think we should talk a little bit about anger because I know you and I both, um, <laughs> but we both like we to write it. a little hot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Covered in hot. I mean, you wrote the anger essay of 2019, um, and I, I, I tried. I had to stop myself from asking you to read the entire thing, um, and like videotape yourself acting it out. But I do have punching things a generous excerpt. <laughs> I do have a generous excerpt. I'd love for you to read. Okay. So this the case for climate rage, right? Yeah, this was called the case for climate rage, and I, I like, I had started working on this, like, I had started working on it like months before it came out because mm-hmm. I just kept, I kept having these experiences over and over again with specifically men in the climate movement where they would sort of like. Um, dismiss how I was feeling, especially if I was angry. Like they, there was a really Mm. like consistent response of like, you know, Mm -hmm. like calm down, be practical. Uh, You know, like this isn't going to help us. Um, Why are you trying to point the finger at people? That's unproductive. All of that. Like I was like hearing these messages over and over again and it it kind of just reminded me of like, experiences that Mm -hmm. I've had in the climate movement all along with like male editors Mm -hmm. and like, you know, like um, people that I'm on listservs with and all of that kind of stuff. And so I I wanted to kind of combine it all together and also a little bit make the point that like, you know, um, people with different experiences than white men have different emotional reactions to climate change and that is equally valid you know yeah Um, yeah so so they were against pointing the finger meanwhile you know we see this in so much climate writing it's all about we yes you know like we did this and it's very much that is pointing a giant finger exactly well and it's it's in this way that it's like oh if we if we can if we can make it a collective responsibility, then we don't mm. have to look at the fact that the people, the very specific people who had a much bigger hand in this look just like us. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah. I don't you get into that in the in the yeah. excerpt. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So here I'll read from this um, case for climate rage. Let's say, OK. There have always been a lot of women covering environmental stories, but the breakout stars, the loudest voices, have tended to be those of white men. More recently, they are specifically literary white men for whom climate change is the ultimate epic saga in which all of humanity is both villain and hero. We had a chance to act on climate decades ago and blew it, the story goes, and now we must rise to the challenge and save humanity. If we don't, and we're unlikely to, we only have ourselves to blame. 
These dominant voices are agreed that climate change stories can be serious, sad, occasionally funny or hopeful, always smart and knowledgeable, more recently a bit alarmist, but never too emotional, and especially not angry. For about two decades now, white male environmentalists and journalists have been telling me and other environmentalists and reporters who look like me, and especially those who are browner than me, that we doesn't quite include us or our anger. It is unseemly and certainly unintellectual to react this way. So is imagining a vastly different future that goes beyond technological solutions or new energy sources. And finger-pointing, quote, playing the blame game, that is certainly not on. The appropriate response is bemused attachment and plenty of charts, followed by a book tour. But when women like my colleagues point the finger, it is not at one company or even one industry. The oil, coal, and automotive industries all play a role, the utilities too, the PR flax and lobbyists who carry out their vision, the politicians who cave. It's a lot of people, but it's not all people. It's not humanity. The story of, quote, us consuming our way to oblivion with the oil companies innocently fulfilling our insatiable greed for fuel is just a lie. What does it matter who's at fault? We all need to come together to solve it, shout men who look just like the men who are most to blame, men who will suffer last and least. It matters because the same patriarchal elites have remained comfortably in power for so long that their imaginations are unequal to the task we face. Arguments for civility, for forgiveness, for we're all in this together, for a preservation of the status quo with just a few tweaks, won't keep us all from going over the cliff. Mm, I love that. So I remember after you posted this, it was just like all over the Twitter machine. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about what the, the reception was like for you? Yeah, actually, I was kind of expecting... Um, to get a lot of angry emails from people. <laughs> Ragey, you mean? I was like, I was like sort of, you know, preparing myself for, you know, like trolls and anger. But actually, a lot of people were really supportive. And a, a lot of women in particular mm -hmm. were like, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And actually quite a few uh, white dudes were like, yeah, I've noticed this too. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then, mm -hmm. you know, the people, the the emails that I did get were mostly from men who who were really genuinely asking, like, how can I be a better ally? Uh, which I yeah. was, like, really appreciative of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I um, really, I, those are my favorite climate guys. Yeah. But <laughs> I do think that there's this thing that happens where a lot of, of like white men that I've talked to in the movement will sort of initially take this tack of, so what do you think I should just not write about this? And and it's weird to me that mm -hmm. the, the choices are like, I either have to dominate or not be involved at all. You know, like yeah. there's a huge yeah. middle there and there's like yeah. many ways that you can... Um, both continue to say your piece and support mm -hmm. other people, you know, expressing themselves right. too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The climate movement does not do good with nuance, does it? It's also it's true. Like, it's very true. It's just so much black and white thinking, right? Yeah. Like, it's either individual or collective action. It's either hope or complete and total despair. Like, right. It's just 
we can never the pendulum just keeps going all over the place yeah yeah that's actually a great segue into the next one that I want you to read from, which I, I just Hi. loved, loved this essay and especially this part of it where you talk about how like the the like we must have hope and the everything is oh, doomed yeah. thing are basically like two sides of uh, the same coin. So this yeah. one is called yeah. um, Home is Always Worth It. And this one also started out angry. It was like sort of an angry response to the Jonathan Franzen essay, right? A little bit. You know, I think I kind of let the Twitter machine uh, get me a little more worked up over that piece than I, I want it to be. And so yeah, yeah. when I sat down to write it, I sort of like I reread his piece and I was like, actually, I see, you know, I kind of see where he's coming from. And I kind mm-hmm. of see what uh, what could send someone like this over domination of the hope narrative, how that can send someone all the way to the other side, because the hope. Right. Uh, narrative is just like so incredibly out of touch at this yeah. point that yeah. I do see how someone can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. And I did think that a lot of the stuff he was saying were like he describes like, you know, climate action can be like voting rights action. Right. And I agree. I totally and completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was talking about how it's too late to stop climate change. And he's right. Um, And I also started to see a lot of blowback for this is why fiction writers shouldn't write about climate. Like, okay, hold on there. (laughs) Put put that pony back in the barn. You can't both say that we need everybody in the climate movement. Why aren't more people engaged on this and be upset about that? And then when new people come and decide that they want to have not just a role, but a speaking role and not just be an extra and take orders, then you know, tell them to get back in their lane. Like, that's not cool. Um, And I just thought that rage is not a good way to engage with those ideas because I think people who have gone to this other side of the spectrum are in a lot of pain. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That is why I decided to take a more compassionate approach. Um, So, okay, this is the part you want me to read. Mm Mm-hmm. What we used to know as potential impacts of global warming now have proper names. Dorian, Yutu, Ade, Campfire, Maria. In our context now, rosy hopefulness feels downright sociopathic. As these tragedies fade and blend into a continuum, the climate community's insistence on hope everlasting begins to sound anything but realistic. It becomes emotionally immature, a hurdle unto itself. Not to mention that in order to have this type of hope, you have to be able to explain the solutions that would justify it. And that favors a certain type of expertise and raises the price of admission to the climate conversation to an astonishing astronomical rate. We can't afford to keep all these gates and all these gatekeepers. Again, we don't have time. Granted, this reflexiveness is a byproduct of decades of relentless bad faith attacks from both industry and government, but the result is the same. It's exhausting, it's ineffective, and it's alienating. Honestly, it's not terribly unlike the Doomer narrative. Both are mansplaining paradises, both smack of the privilege wrought from the deluded belief that this world has ever been perfect and that, therefore, an imperfect version of it is not worth saving or fighting for. Both represent two sides of an overprivileged pendulum swung too far. And the swing is so unnecessary, given the abundant room in the middle. Room for all of us, in fact. 
The community that prides itself on scientific nuance can learn to embrace emotional nuance. It is absolutely possible to prepare for the disasters already terrifyingly upon us while also doing our damnedest to quit baking more in. We can acknowledge the storm of emotions that comes with watching our world unravel, process those emotions, pick ourselves up to protect what we can. Because it's worth it. Because we're worth it. We don't have to be Pollyannish or fatalistic. We can just be human. Oh, I love it so much. Um, Thank you. It's so good. Well, it's it's just, (laughs) I love that when, like, I read something that I feel like expresses what I've been, like, thinking but unable to articulate. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, thank you. Yeah. 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 That's kind of like, you know, always the goal because I think there's so many things swirling around it that we don't know how to talk about. And it just sort of feels like you're trying to grasp at the air and yeah, it doesn't have a form. You can't like fully see it because you can't describe it. But the interesting experience of writing this essay was as I wrote the hope section, I was like, why does this feel redundant? Like I got to, a, you know, like the editor in me sort of like kicked in. I was like, you wrote this part already. Yes. Why, why are you repeating yourself? Yes. And I scrolled up and was like, no, I didn't write this part. And then I reread what I wrote about the Doomer narrative and how that made me feel. And I looked at what I wrote for the Hope narrative and I was like, oh, they both make me feel the same thing. They're Mm -hmm. the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. And that was when I completely changed the entire frame of the essay. Well, the way you put it here is perfect, that it's the, the exact same kind of approach of like, like sort of mansplaining. It's coming from this place of thinking that like things were perfect and that anything imperfect mm-hmm. is, is like not worth mm-hmm. fighting for. All of that. It's yeah, yep. it's really yep. good. Yeah. Um, OK, I feel like I want to have you read from the, the first essay of yours that I read which was this Vox one that really just kind of debunks this whole, you know, individual responsibility narrative that we hear all the time and we see in all these annoying fossil fuel ads like, you know, Mm -hmm. you need to get a handle on your carbon footprint or like you need to fly less or you need to go vegan or whatever. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I especially loved how you were very careful to make the point. And of course, this did not stop people who didn't actually read the essay from arguing with you. But but I I loved that you were like careful to make the point that, you know, you're not saying that those actions Mm -hmm. are unnecessary or stupid or a waste of time Mm -hmm. or that people shouldn't do them or any of those things that just Mm -hmm. that like Mm -hmm. they need to be Mm -hmm. combined with systemic collective action. Um, So, yeah, I have this little excerpt for you to read. Yeah. Okay. Once upon a time, perhaps, we needed a strong grasp of science to understand climate change. But now all we have to do is look at the daily headlines or out of our windows. From the campfire, a devastating California wildfire that was exacerbated by dry, hot weather, to Hurricane Michael, a storm that rapidly intensified due to increased sea temperatures, climate change is here. I don't blame anyone for wanting absolution. I can even understand abdication, which is its own form of absolution. But underneath all that is a far more insidious force. It's the narrative that has both driven and obstructed the climate change conversation for the past several decades. It tells us climate change could have been fixed if we had all just ordered less takeout, used fewer plastic bags, turned off some more lights, planted a few trees, or driven an electric car. It says that if those adjustments can't do the trick, what's the point? The belief that this enormous existential problem 
could have been fixed if all of us had just tweaked our consumptive habits is not only preposterous, it's dangerous. It turns environmentalism into an individual choice defined as sin or virtue, convicting those who can't or don't uphold its ethics. When you consider that the same IPCC report outlined that the vast majority of global greenhouse gas emissions comes from just a handful of corporations aided and abetted by the world's most powerful governments, including the U.S., it's victim-blaming, plain and simple. When people come to me to confess their green sins, as if I were some sort of eco-nun, I want to tell them that they're carrying the guilt of the oil and gas industry's crimes, that the weight of our sickly planet is too much for any one person to shoulder, and that that blame paves the road to apathy, which can really seal our doom. But that doesn't mean we do nothing. Climate change is a vast and complicated problem, and that means that the answer is complicated too. We need to let go of the idea that it's all of our individual faults, then take on the collective responsibility of holding the true culprits accountable. In other words, we need to become many Davids against one big bad Goliath. Yes. Also, I love that you're, I love that you're like an eco nun that people confess their green sin. <laughs> but I'm sure you have that experience too, right? Yes. It's so funny. Actually, it's, it's really funny. Like um, I was talking to Anna Jane Joyner about this, that like mm-hmm. every time um, in the past, like there's been many occasions where I have like met up with someone who also works on climate and I'm always a little bit unsure of like, you know, what I should or shouldn't do in front of them like I'm like if I eat meat will they like think less of me if I have like a to-go coffee cup like get in trouble right right or if I'm in town right and I know where they live do I do I let them know I'm in town or are they gonna be mad if I that I flew I know I know yeah it's a whole thing (laughs) I have those questions with myself sometimes too yes um yes Mm -hmm. and it's just so incredibly unproductive yeah And, you know, I, so this um, piece came out of two main places. Mm -hmm. There was the piece you, that I read from a minute ago, the big lie we're told about climate change is our own fault. I got a lot of blowback from, well, not a lot. I got some blowback from that piece because, you know, people were saying that I was um, anti-individual action. And that because in that piece, Mm. I also say that like the oil and gas industry is gaslighting you and it's not your fault and all that's bullshit. Right, right. Um, And of course, here comes, you know, the individual action lobby. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Saying that I was my favorite comment was somebody was who was saying, like, this is just what upper class white people and the coastal elites uh, say to themselves and I was like I'm not going to comment on any other criticism but when I saw that I was like um, I'm a black woman from Mississippi so <laughs> you might want to back that shit up yeah so I, I started writing it in my head after that and then it kind of came into more focus when I was on this panel in like March and one of the questions was about um, our individual action is like boycotting um, toilet paper companies enough. Like I, I do that, but like, is that useful? Is that meaningful? I was like, yes, your individual actions are definitely meaningful, mm-hmm. but the goal should always be to make your, your individual actions something bigger than yourself. And I just wasn't uh, satisfied with that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to really try to break this dichotomy because I just saw when she asked that question, I saw how broken she felt. I saw how puny she felt. Um, and, you know, I've been 
talking about this a lot on Twitter lately, I think like the reason really that people shut down around climate is not because the problem is so big, even though it is. I think it's more that the solutions we give them are so puny. And, right, right. You know, it's well, it's, it's like they're either like, they're either mm-hmm. puny or like overwhelming. Because I think that like the mm-hmm. appeal of the individual action thing is that like it's a thing I can do, you know. And so people right. want to believe that that will make a difference <laughs> in some ways, you know. Right. Um, right. Because then you get into this like, well, what? How do I? What am I gonna do to like change the entire mm-hmm. system we live in? You know. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And you anyway, can't sorry. Just yeah. wall yourself around uh, off of it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I I started it started formulating in my head. This was one of the ones where I'm so grateful I had an an editor. Mm. Um, the editor I work with at Vox was you know she also was the one who picked up um, when climate change broke my heart and republished it as like the big lie we're told about climate change is our fault. So like I already had a working relationship with her and I already knew her to be a good Mm -hmm. editor. She really helped me get this idea out. And I, what I loved is also when I first started talking about it, I know it probably sounded to her kind of hazy, but she like stuck with me and took a chance with me. And I think that is something that I'm sure you know about this, like women and women of color in this field, we kind of don't always get that chance. Yeah. You know, like you, I've had this experience, and I'm sure you have too, of like pitching idea after idea or idea. And they're all like, yeah, I don't think that's real. I don't think that's real. I don't think anybody experiences that. And you're like, yes. no, dude, like this is actually my experience. Oh, I'm telling you it. it happens. I hate And this. that is why like a lot of my stuff is on medium. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause like, I'll be like, yeah, I actually think my idea is good and I believe it. So I'm going to go write it. I, I do it anyway. <laughs> you know, that's actually the genesis of Drilled too. Like I oh, had yeah. this idea of doing, you know, like almost like a legal procedural framework for the mm-hmm. the whole, you know, creation and spread of climate denial. And um, everywhere I pitched it to was like, I don't know, like the Exxon news story has been told and or like, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we frame it as a legal thing, then, you know, um, it, it makes it look like we're trying to make them villains. I'm like, I'm not trying to make them anything. I'm literally using documents from them, yeah. like their own internal yeah. documents make them they look like it. villains. It's not me. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um, so I was like, oh fine, fine. Yeah. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it as a true crime podcast. And like, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And like, yeah, I had this experience um, trying to write about the media's role in this stuff, too. That's a perfect uh, segue into the piece that I wanted you to read from, actually. Awesome. Um, why are New York Times and Washington Post producing ads for big oil? Yes. Why indeed? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Numerous top news organizations, including The Times, Politico, and The Washington Post, have pocketed hundreds of thousands of dollars from ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, and organizations such as the American Petroleum Institute to create the company's advertorials. Call it greenwashing with a twist. The twist being that the fossil (laughs) fuel companies' claims of good corporate citizenship are now being supported by respected news organizations at a time when the same news organizations must dramatically improve their coverage of the climate crisis, such a financial relationship with the very companies that are helping drive the crisis is problematic at best. 
It's like insane to me that we've gone from, you know, the 80s and 90s where ExxonMobil, well, first mobile and then Exxon and then ExxonMobil were taking out, you know, mm-hmm. weekly advertorial ads in the New York Times, which like it's pretty bad to this, which is not an improvement. It's actually worse at a time when we're more aware about climate change. We're more aware about the impacts that climate denial and that influence campaigns yeah. have had on our ability to act on climate, yeah. that they would do this is just like, come on. Like, I understand that, you yeah. know, you're a for-profit business and you need money and all of that stuff. But, like, it just feels like this is not that hard of a line to draw. Yeah. And to just underscore, there are really brilliant climate pr- reporters at the New York very, Times. Very, very. Yeah, it's undermining their own reporters. I want to go back to to Drilled for a second because okay. that is how I first first heard of you. Yeah. Um I thought Drilled was when it first came into my world <laughs> last spring, it was just like such an I such an a welcome addition to my life. <laughs> I um I couldn't I couldn't stop listening to it. Like I I just spent a whole day listening to those episodes because they're so brilliantly put together of I think I saw you say this somewhere um that not all crimes are against the law (laughs) and you really do like make it creepy (laughs) it is creepy but um you know and it wasn't a lot of stuff that I didn't that was surprising to me but it was a lot I didn't know like I didn't know the full extent of how far they went um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, your experience putting that show together and what the response to it has been? Yeah. Yeah. So I, like I, um, maybe five or six years ago was driving around listening to NPR and thinking like, oh, I wish I could do radio. And then I thought, well, I probably could, like, I'm sure there's a member station around here. I could like, you know, I could spend a few hours a week learning how to do it, whatever. And so I contacted my local NPR station and I offered myself as like an overaged intern. And they were like, yeah, uh, actually, it's a lot harder for us to teach people reporting than it is to teach people audio equipment handling. So um, I went in and I did uh, like a month long internship there and learned how to do audio and then started doing some reporting for them. And this whole time I was trying to think of like, what would a good climate change podcast be? Like there, you know, there were podcasts that existed, but they were all pretty much focused on the science and or on energy technology. Those were like the two realms. And I kept trying to come up with like a more narrative story. And then I started covering um, the sort of latest round of climate cases. And I was in a courtroom in San Francisco. And like, I just like was like, oh, this is it. It's like law and order meets climate change. All the characters are here. There's Mm -hmm. this eccentric judge. Mm -hmm. There's like the activist. (laughs) music. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yes, totally. I was just like, oh, my God, this is it. So um, then from that point on, I was like, I think this is a good way to tell the story because I had read all of the um, coverage that Inside Climate News had done and the L.A. Times. Mm -hmm. And they partnered with the Columbia Journalism School. And like there had been some stuff in The Guardian, too. And I felt like people hadn't absorbed it um, and that like there just was not an understanding of how bad this was and how um, how extreme it was, you know? And mm-hmm. I thought if I can get some of these old scientists to talk to me and people can hear them 
talking about, yeah. like, I was there and we knew exactly mm-hmm. what was going to happen, you know, um, that that will be more compelling. And I feel like I was right. I mean, there I think a, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who kind of, I think, you know, really just didn't even notice the Exxon news story when it first came out have been like, holy mm-hmm. crap, I had no idea. Um, and I think, too, that, you know, there's a bunch of... There's a bunch of market research that's been done around, you know, what people do and don't react to in the climate story. And the thing that has the the most sort of breakthrough power for both uh, conservatives and liberals and like kind of every demographic is this whole idea of fairness, which makes sense Mm -hmm. because it's like Mm -hmm. kind of the first – you know, narrative we start to uh, like absorb as toddlers, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's why I'm always saying to make it about justice and not science, to be exactly, quite honest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, yeah. So it's, and you know, I was only ever intending to do one limited run season, but then. Um, <laughs> You're finding so many crimes. <laughs> well, yeah, there's so many like ways that it can go. Like, I, like during the first season, I talked to these crab fishermen and they told me all about their stories. Mm-hmm. So that became the second season. And then um, mm-hmm. in the course of researching the first season, too, I found all of this sort of historical information and um, mm-hmm. have continued to build on that. So the, the third season mm-hmm. will be um, we're calling it the Mad Men of Climate Denial because it's like. This, oh my gosh! These I'm very so like specific dudes who created this whole PR apparatus mm-hmm. that like we're mm-hmm. still dealing with now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. were like, you talked about this, I believe, in the the Nation piece, or was it the Washington Post piece, where they uh, they're the exact same people who did Big Tobacco. Yes, in a lot yeah. of cases. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of them were. Um, there's a huge amount of crossover between like the u.s military and these guys like most of them mm-hmm. were u.s military intelligence then they got into the private sector they worked for like the story that's been told a lot is that it's like oh tobacco mm-hmm. figured this out and then the oil companies like used their playbook that i don't i haven't mm-hmm. found that to be actually like quite right um mm. Like what I've seen, at least on the PR side, I think on the science side, like Naomi Oreskes has done a great job of tracking specific like fake scientists from tobacco (laughs) to oil. You know, it's like the same guys Mm -hmm. who were like did this whole strategy of um, of basically like doing all these studies around all the other causes of lung cancer, like went on and did all the studies around like all the other causes of climate change, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. on the PR side, actually like, um, the, like oil and coal were basically like the first industries that ever used PR. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, anyway, there's a lot yeah. to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what it makes me think about is that, you know, the fossil fuel industry really takes storytelling seriously. Yes. And I, I don't know if you feel this way, but in the climate space, in the environmental space, it sort of feels like storytelling was a nice to have mm-hmm. for a really long time. And there mm-hmm. was a, you know, reluctance to play with it, to try different narratives, to be creative with it. Yeah. And the fossil fuel industry, like, you know, sort of will invest whole hog in it and has been from the very beginning because they know that that is where manipulation lives. That is where, you know, all the power is. And I've been seeing this, as you know, I troll 
um, <laughs> fossil fuel companies on, mm-hmm. on Twitter is mm-hmm. kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my dream is to get blocked by one of the big ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> someone responded to me. I was like, actually, I kind of feel bad for the poor intern doing their social media, getting attacked with this. And I was like, what makes you think that, that, that that's how they run their social media? Right. They know how much power is, is in storytelling. They invest in their communication shops like crazy. I actually would be yeah. interested to see like the stats on, on what their communications apparatus looks like. But oh, I, yeah. It, it's it's very obvious that they invest heavily. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, I, I mean, yeah. I can almost guarantee you that they invest more in that than they do in all their bullshit, like algae biofuels and carbon capture programs. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that they're telling these stories about. It's like... Yep. And you know what's crazy? Like, I, I only watch cable news when I, you know, am traveling um, because I hate myself. And when <laughs> that, I'm, watching... I'm the same. I'm the same. I don't know why. Like, in hotels, I'm like, I, I better watch some cable news so I can see what kind of, like, crazy bullshit's happening there now. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And they advertise like fucking crazy. Like, yeah. I was in a hotel room and I fell asleep with it on like an idiot. And I was, like, having dreams about algae. <laughs> Yes. Because yes. there's so many fucking ads about algae. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, it's all like it's it's all it's all like Exxon algae fuels and like catheter kits. I don't know. Why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's so weird. I think you said this um at some point that like they're not advertising their actual products. No. No one cares what gas they use in their car. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's yeah. watching TV and being like, oh, I got to get some Chevron at my house. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah, it's crazy. This is why actually the, the new um, Twitter policy around political issue ads is going to be really interesting to see like how it shakes down because the oil companies for years have very effectively gotten around various rules on political issue advertising. Um, by mm-hmm. claiming that they're advertising their product, but they're not. You know, they're clearly not. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I oh know. I know. Oh, I know what I was going to say, too, about the, the storytelling thing is that, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like kind of parallels the whole emotion thing, too. Like for years, the climate movement has been sort of scared of tapping into emotions like fear and anger mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sadness mm-hmm. and whatever. Uh, but those are like exactly what the fossil fuel industry goes for. Like they're all about like exactly lizard brain, gut punch, all that stuff. And like, you know, we've been trying to combat that with fucking charts. Like it doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, we could talk forever about this stuff, and I can't wait to bring all of this to the Frump Era episodes. Oh my God, you're really going to let me call it Frump? I've been trying to make that happen forever. Yes. Yes. Why not? Why not? I love you. And to our listeners, all the articles we talked about in this episode will be in our show notes if you want to read them. Right. And they'll be posted on our Twitter, which you can and should follow at at Real Hot Take. Going forward, we'll be sharing the links to all the articles up for discussion the night before the episode releases. So definitely make sure that you follow. And please tweet at us with your article suggestions, especially for the year in review episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter individually. I'm at Amy Westervelt and Mary is at Mary Heglar, H-E-G-L-A-R. 
I have one announcement for folks in New York. I'm going to be doing a Story Collider event on December 2nd, which is a Monday, um, with my friends Kate Marvel and Martha Jeffries and a couple of other folks. Um, you can find those details on my Twitter and the show's Twitter. Um, but please do come out if you want to hear me talk more about my granddaddy and Hurricane Katrina. That sounds so awesome. I'm bummed that I don't live in New York <laughs> again. <laughs> you can move. <laughs> I, know. I know. Just move your entire uh, life out here. <laughs> I know. I know. I have one quick announcement, too, that the next season of Drilled is coming out. So check your feeds for that. That's so exciting. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we've got a lot of reading to do, and we're sure you're going to send us more of it. So we'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.